Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. This is another episode of a Get to Know Our Coaches here at Barbell Medicine. We have Hassan Manzur with us. And the two most interesting things you need to know about Hassan is one, very early in his resistance training career, like a few months in, he was able to pass the starting strength coaching platform out of nowhere. So he's like a, a lifting savant. And then he also was able to correctly predict the games of throne game of Thrones ending. It's the only person I know who's done this. And so again, I think he's got some next level sort of perceptive skills and can predict the future. So we'll see. <laughs> that, that transpires. Way more impressive by the way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Hassan, you want to give people a little background, like where you're from, how long you've been doing this for, you know, just sure. the standard bio stuff. All right. Uh, so uh, my name is Hassan Mansour. I am a full-time strength and conditioning coach. Um, I uh, I've done personal training for uh, for two or three years at this point, and um, my my previous background was I used to build houses. So uh, I went to school, got a business degree, uh, did some internships after that, and I think at the end of my first internship, the manager called me aside and was like, "Hey, man." You know, you, you've done well, but this isn't for you. I think you need anything. I think you need to be a little more active out of the office. I'm, I'm that kind of guy that was just running around all day. So that that's how I got into construction after that. I, I didn't have um, I, I didn't have any inkling that I would get into strength and conditioning. All the, but I uh, I was interested in that for me personally. And uh, it just kind of took off naturally. And then after a few years of uh, working construction and personal training, I had some mentors uh, here in New Jersey. I was coached by Jason Manikoff. And then later after that, I was coached by you. And, uh, you know, things took off from there. Get it? Yeah, you had to cut it, start slumming it with the uh, with the Feigenbaum protocol. Right. No, uh, <laughs> so what's your what's your education background? I assume you went to undergrad. You got a degree from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, have, uh, I had an economics degree. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, just a bachelor's degree. That so... Would you recommend an economics degree for people who want to be strength conditioning coaches? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I would recommend it for uh, – I mean it, it's it's hard to say. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone, but um, I, I wouldn't recommend it for strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it for uh, for people trying to, trying to use that degree to get a job. But uh, I, yeah, I, think sure. it, I think it did help me learn to think about stuff in a different way. Well, that's yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of a recurring theme. Yeah. I was talking to Charlie about his PT school experience. But so economics is really interesting and particularly uh, economists are really interesting individuals when they go into like problem solving mode, when tr- there's a problem or a question that needs to be addressed and they're able to think about things much differently than people who are kind of raised in like the, the biological, you know, so- the hard sciences uh, as far as like collecting information and what questions are appropriate or even answerable. Um, so I actually think that as a science, like, uh, that, that field is, is very useful for problem solving. That being said, to get a job <laughs> in economics, yeah. <laughs> you, you, well, you have to end up, you know, getting your PhD and like writing a bunch of papers and then effectively universities want to hire you because you're putting out so much content and they're like, this would be good for our, you know, and <laughs> or either getting money from the state or other endowments or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. People, people seem to think like having learning on the job skills while you're in undergrad is like, that's the function of a university education. And I think there's, you know, 
that's appropriate in some cases, but a lot of times it's just how to think about things. And I think given your, again, <laughs> your ability to pass the platform test very early on in your you know training career, and then also like the Game of Thrones prediction, <laughs> I, you got to chalk that up to your, your, your background, I think. Okay. All right. <laughs> so when did you actually start lifting weights? Like how did that happen? Uh, was it in high school or, or, you know, are you a late bloomer? Uh, I, I lifted some weights in high school. I uh, was, I played baseball for a while and uh, we, we had to lift as, you know, part of practice, but it, it wasn't consistent. Um, I, I always had an interest in it, but I, I was never consistent with it until I, I graduated college and just needed something to do. And uh, I remember the first article I looked up online was like, you know, how to lift weights and, I, I ran across like a old five by five article, or maybe it was like a Bill Starr link or something like that. And my first exposure to the gym has always been, um, I never had like that bro phase where you go in and, and, and do bench press. I, the first time I stepped in the gym, I think I did like five by five back squats. That was like the thing. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I didn't do anything else, right? I just went and I, I would squat and leave because I, I didn't know what else to do. And then, uh, you know, as I continued reading and, and stuff like that, things, things came along, but I, 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 I didn't have a huge experimental phase in lifting particularly. I kind of just, you know, I, I, I jumped right into it, but I did have a lot of sampling in high school. I, I, I played various sports. I've, uh, you know, baseball, Taekwondo, soccer, stuff like that. So I, I was always uh physical in that way, but, uh, I didn't have a, 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 you know, a long experimental phase in lifting specifically. Now, are are you the only barbell medicine coach who out squats his deadlift? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> it's which are both still impressive. Why don't you give people a background of like your your current numbers or your best numbers, so that way you know you gotta assert your dominance here. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, my my best numbers. These are all in the gym. Uh, back squat uh, five hundred and sixty. Uh, bench press three fifty. Deadlift. 555. I usually just say 560. So no one asks me the question of why do you squat more than you deadlift? Well, let's, I mean, I think that's interesting because people ask us, Hey, how much more should you pull than you squat? Or I, you know, somebody will say I squat more than I deadlift. Like, what do I do? (laughs) I mean, what's, what's your take on, what's your take on that? Is it a problem? I mean, would you change anything early on in someone's training based on a discrepancy there? If they were squatting more than they pull? Uh, maybe not on the discrepancy. I wouldn't want them to pull like a certain ratio, but I, I, if I could go back to, you know, my, the, that first part of training, I would definitely do more deadlifts. I would yeah. do more pulling and it would be heavy. I would not snatch and clean to help my deadlift. I would <laughs> deadlift more. Well, yeah, that's, and that's another thing we've been talking about a lot lately. So if, if you guys have, haven't listened to any of our other podcasts on this, that, you know, this particular topic of exercise programming, we typically now have been advising against doing the Olympic lifts, uh, as sort of accessories for the deadlift and the rationale behind it was, well, it's just more pulling, right? So, you know, it's an assistance lift, but the problem is it's sufficiently different enough to not have a great transfer to a heavy deadlift. So deadlifting strength is more low velocity, high force production, whereas power cleans or cleans and snatches are high velocity, high force productions. And so you're selecting for different muscle fiber types and different mo- movement patterns and, and basically muscle contraction velocity, and they're specific. So if you had to pick an assistance exercise for the deadlift, you'd want something with a similar 
contraction velocity, similar range of motion, similar joint angles, the whole deal. And there are other options. We have so many other options that picking a power clean or clean or a snatch or power snatch as your deadlift assistant seems, you know, like an error because you yeah. just don't, you, there's just other stuff to do. <laughs> um, but, but the other thing is, and I think we see this is it's just anthropometry. I think in your case, because yeah. you are yeah. so well-trained now that we right. would expect it like, all right, if the volume, if the initial volume of your pulling was incorrect and that was like the linchpin and you're pulling, you know, success, right. That by now you'd be out pulling your deadlift, but really for you, again, it's, it's a, an anthropometry thing or, or, or a significant portion of it. Um, yeah. give yeah. people, so people can't see you right now. Uh, if you had to describe your levers or your sort of body type, how would you, uh, how would you do that? And remember, this is a family show. So right. okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, about 75% torso, 10% body hair, and then the <laughs> limbs. That's funny. I mean, so yeah, if you look at Hassan profile, like his torso is much, much longer. Uh, and his femurs are very short and his arms are not very long either. So this guy's, you know, effectively built a squat and your pressing strength is, is, is pretty good as well. Just from a pulling standpoint, we would prefer if you had longer arms and a more average torso to femur ratio, (laughs) but, but you know, it's not like you're going to detrain your squat just to get your deadlift to be stronger than your squat. You're just going to keep training and try to take both numbers up. Right. Um, Right. The other, the other time that we see this, and I don't know, you know, if you've had a lot of experience with this in your coaching practice, uh, especially like supers and, and other, and other heavyweights, tend to out squat their deadlift. And I think a couple, there's a couple reasons. There are a couple reasons there. One, there are no sort of physical impediments about getting into position for the squat. You just really the you know, the extra body mass doesn't matter as far as like getting set up. You kind of could just walk out the weight and squat and there may even be some benefit there. Yeah. Maybe some advantages there to have the power belly. Whereas that kind of impedes you from getting set up, uh, you know, on a, on a deadlift. The other thing is, so you can take a guy like Ray Williams, right? His best squats over a thousand raw, you know, he's probably one of the best squatters that we've ever seen. Him trying to out deadlift that is going to be limited not only by his anthropometry and like body habitus to getting in position, but like just the grip strength. It's just a different yeah. requirement that is not challenged in the squat. Yeah. 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 So in any event, that being said, some of us, <clears throat> maybe on this side of the, on the line, uh, you know, have uh, longer arms and, um, you know, that's why my deadlift, I think my best deadlift is a hundred and no, it's 80 pounds better than my best squat, which is, I, I would almost argue as kind of the opposite relationship. Like I would prefer my squat to be higher. I respect it to be closer, yeah, yeah. but you know, what are you gonna do? Can't go, can't go back in time. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't go back in time. But, you know, your your squatting strength and overall build did kind of lend itself nicely to some weightlifting prowess. So you uh, just have kind of ended your weightlifting experiment. That was what was it two years, three years that you kind of were chasing? I think it was two years. Yeah, two years, maybe 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 a year and a half of actually knowing what I was doing. That first six months was just, you know, learning, learning. the lifts. Yeah, getting getting things very wrong. So it's (laughs) right. Yeah. So two years. And just for the listeners at home. uh the biggest, the differences between Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting, if you just had to describe them briefly. Um, powerlifting, lifting heavy weights very slowly, where weightlifting, lifting moderate weights very fast. That Those would be, you know, just how to describe it to, you know, just the lay person, I guess. Yeah. Yep. So there's 
two two different sets of competitive lifts. Um, and so, for instance, when people talk about like an Olympic squat, for instance, we all kind of know that that means like either a high bar squat or in some cases a front squat, depending yeah. on how specific we're talking about. But there is no contested lift that is a squat. You could go in and power clean or muscle clean and muscle snatch all of your lifts theoretically well, on the platform. You, which you, you can't muscle snatch because you can't press it out, but you could muscle oh, clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, as long as I, I think if I ever was an Olympic lifter, you know, because to get around the sort of elbow, uh, bending, you know, <laughs> problem, I would just tell them that I have bad elbows. I would walk yeah. up on the platform. I would touch both elbows signaling that my elbows are janky, which they're not, but you know, I'd like some leeway Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the, the right one just doesn't lock. Yeah. Come on guys. Okay. Yeah. So you did this for two years. Uh, what were your starting numbers? Like, uh, so t- yeah, when you first started doing the Olympic weightlifting experiment, we'll call it, what were your numbers on like the squat and the deadlift and the bench? And then what were your starting Olympic, uh, numbers? Okay. Um, I, I, when I first started weightlifting, I had just finished my, uh, I had just finished a powerlifting meet. I think my squat was uh 501. I did that high bar just because that's the way I squatted at the time. I think my bench press was 315 and deadlift maybe was 518 or 508 or something in that range. And that was at like uh, 183 body weight, 83 kilo USAPL class. And then, uh, after that, uh, I went into weightlifting those, those first few months, I don't know what my top end weightlifting numbers were. I didn't yeah. really know how to do the lifts. I was just, you know, getting introduced to it. Um, I, I think I, w- within six months, I think I had power, I, I had power snatch, maybe 90 and maybe snatched a hundred. And then it took me a little while after that to, you know, to, to take those lifts up. But, uh, the, the jerk came on really fast. Uh, the, the clean took me a little while to get just because, you know, I don't know. It, it, it just took me longer to get than the snatch of the jerk. Yeah. That, actually the opposite experience, uh, during my CrossFit experiment, like the snatch was easily the worst. Yeah. So, so like when I started, the CrossFit experiment, my best squat was 640 and best deadlift was 725 and best bench was 430. And then at the time, my best power clean, the, when I had screwed around with it was like, I think it was only 120 kilos, 264. Right. But so within, your, your deadlift didn't transfer to, you, you didn't just clean 400 pounds with a 700 pound deadlift. It turns out, I mean, yeah, I could power clean 264 all day, you know, but it, when it came to 275, I remember trying because in my, you know, trying 275, like over and over and over again, and I just wouldn't rack it. It just, yeah. I just didn't have the skills to, to do that. And, yeah. um, it the strength wasn't the problem. It was the skill was the was problem. But if you think about, I want to be an Olympic weightlifter. Well, you need to develop those skills in line with your strength. Yeah. So you wouldn't, it would be very inefficient to like, well, I'm just going to get as strong as humanly possible. I'm going to get an 800 pound deadlift first, <laughs> and then I'm going to learn how to clean. Um, yeah. So in any event, yeah, but I think three months into my CrossFit experiment, I had power cleaned 150, 330, but I only snatched like 102. Yeah. Yeah. So that that skill just, you know, that, that skill just wasn't developed regardless of that huge strength discrepancy between, you know, what you can pull from the floor and and what you can throw overhead. You just hadn't done that lift up to that point. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the, th- the interesting thing too, is that if you think about 150 kilo power clean, what people at home are like, Oh, 330, that's like, that's legit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, not for a 700 pound deadlifter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, re- really? Cause yeah. if you took an Olympic weightlifter and they pulled 700, yeah, they're cleaning in the four hundreds or more. Right. Right. I think, I think, 
And there's and there's plenty that can clean 400 with without you know deadlifting much at all. Yeah, so exactly. I, I think that lends itself to the argument that you know not only is strength specific, but displaying power in specific con- it's like sporting contests. That's also specific. Yeah, so, the whole de- the whole deal yeah. is specific. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so Klokov, his his Dmitry Klokov, he's an old, uh, not old, but a former Russian weightlifter. He he reports that his best deadlift, I believe, was three thirty or three hundred thirty five kilos, which mm-hmm. is like seven hundred forty something pounds. But his best clean and jerk is over five hundred. Yeah, it's, and so yeah, I, I think when you're trying to argue in favor of like get a really strong deadlift before, you know, you specialize in doing the Olympic lifts. I think that's an error. Similarly, I think it's an error that if you're a, an entry level weightlifter, avoiding the deadlift is probably not your best bet either. I mean, yeah, you'd want to do both. It's just, you need to practice the specific skills so that they transfer appropriately. You'd want to develop a strong deadlift using similar postures to the clean. Yeah. And you'd also want to train the clean. And the sure. snatch. Sure. Failure to do either of those things is probably likely to put you behind. Um, yeah. Okay. Just, just cut your overall development from in, in a in a in a long term sense. Yeah. Exactly. Not that, not that you need to deadlift to you know immediately to make your your snatch and clean and jerk go up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it, yeah. And it's well, and especially like long term. So if you have somebody who's like a veteran Olympic weightlifter and they're like, I need to get my clean up and I don't want to get my my snatch up. Yeah. And, and, and so let's say this person is clean and jerking like 160 and they're snatching 130. So they mm-hmm. got a 290, a 290 total, which is pretty good for yeah. uh, for middleweight, you know? And um, if you're coaching them or trying to, you know, think about this problem as like a thought experiment, well, you could say, well, there's a strength discrepancy. They need to deadlift, get their deadlift strength up so that they can produce more force. And then, then they can apply that specifically. Sure. Or, or the other like end of the spectrum would be, well, they need to do more clean and jerks and more snatches to, you know, further be able to apply their existing strength or force production potential specifically. Yeah. And, and I think again, in that case, it's really both it's until, both. And the, until the individual like points you one way or the other, Yeah, you know, based on the results, it, it's like, it's like at the beginning of a weightlifter's career, you'd want to do both. Yeah. And then later on, you'd also want to do both unless you have specific insights into how they respond. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, another thing. Okay. So let's, let's, let's get back to your numbers. Cause I, I like these, oh. I like, I like this hard objective stuff. And then at the end, so two years now have passed, how, where did you end up taking your snatch up, uh, up to you were 90 kilos right at the beginning. What did you yeah. end up snatching uh, two years later? Uh, I snatched 115 at 89. Yeah, uh, so- my, my best clean and jerk, uh, 115 would be like, 253 yeah, yeah something like that and yep. um my my best clean and jerk is in the in the gym 145 which would be 319 i think I've yeah cleaned, i've cleaned a little bit more than that and i've jerked a lot more than that but have not been able to put the two together yeah 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 so still pretty good improvement going from you know 90 and what did you say 100 yeah i mean i mean the, yeah that was that was like the you know, that's where I started out in the snatch. I, I can't remember where I started out in the clean. I, I hadn't done a max clean when I, when I first started. I don't, I don't think we, you know, we did heavy cleans until a little while that after that intro phase. So I, yeah. I, I just can't remember what the, what that starting point was. And now here's an interesting question uh, that I'd like to talk about because there's a, a group of individuals 
who would advocate for a very vertical bar path in the clean and jerk and the snatch, mm-hmm. citing that it's the most efficient way to produce force against an external load. And so if you can produce the most force in this straight vertical bar path, then you can accelerate it to a higher degree and it'll it'll go higher so you can rack it or rack a heavier weight. Sure. Uh, do you, is that your, I mean, do you still have that in understanding or has that changed since your practical experience under I, the bar? I, I think that's changed quite a bit. Um, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot and um, it, it, it's kind of hard to, to look at the, to, to look at the, the results in weightlifting, you know, to look at the best in the world and say, Hey, you know, if, if that guy changed up his bar path a little, you know, <laughs> if Ilya just changed his bar path a little, he'll be better. So <laughs> Ilya is funny though. Cause he like runs out to the platform and like, it's almost like he's on purpose kicking the bar forward. It's literally yeah. rolling forward before he decides that he's going to clean and jerk over 500 pounds. Yeah. But, but he's, he's, he doesn't care. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 I've gotten away from, from thinking about this stuff in, in such a top down or reverse engineered model. And, uh, I, I'm kind of okay with not being certain about, about the bar pass debate. You know, there I've, I've heard both sides of the argument, you know, the people that argue for, for curved bar path say, Hey, you know, uh, the, the shortest distance, uh, I'm, you know, the, the, the straight bar path is a shorter distance, but that, that gives you less time to accelerate. Whereas a yeah. curve in the bar path could maybe give the lifter more time to generate momentum or acceleration on the bar. So it's, you know, it, it's hard to say, you, you know, you don't want, I mean, I think all, all weightlifting coaches would agree that you don't want too much horizontal displacement of the bar, especially sure. after it leaves the hip. You don't want to pull the bar out from, you know, too far out from over your toes. It's, it's, it's hard to say either way, but yeah. When, when I coach the lifts these days, if I'm, if I'm helping someone in the gym, there's, there's stuff I look for in the start position, but I, I don't give them this top down thing of, Hey, you know, your bar path has to be straight. And if, and if the bar isn't directly over your midfoot, when you start this, this, and this is going to happen, you know, I, 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 I've just gotten away from that sort of thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's the same. Yeah. I have similar thoughts and mainly when I think about lifting technique from a macro level overall, I think that there are individual styles that people tend to gravitate towards yep. either because, you know, sometimes it's because they're inappropriately coached. And so yep. like that'll be bad habits sure. and that certainly happens. Yep. But, you know, another reason why people will kind of like switch to these different styles or adopt a certain style is due to preferences based on what they're comfortable with and trying to maximize their own levers. You right. know, they're like, well, if I do it this way, I'm able to recover from the clean or the snatch yep. a little bit easier, or I can rack it a little bit better, you know, right. um, the, yeah, the, the non-vertical bar path argument, I find a little bit more compelling at, at least as a viable option for yeah. pulling mechanics. And that's based on data from tall lifters, not necessarily Olympic weightlifters, it just yeah. specifically, but also just general resistance training. So the taller, the lifter, the taller, the lifter, the higher, uh, acceleration, the greater acceleration they get on a given lift at a, a similar relative intensity um, than a shorter lifter. And the explanation is because they have a longer range of motion that they can actually achieve a higher velocity. So would we transfer that argument to this non-vertical pulling sort of discussion? It's not an argument because no one knows the answer. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, then you c- can see an argument for this non-vertical 
pulling uh, uh, these non-vertical pulling mechanics. And so I think we should at least allow the option that, you know, again, multiple styles of pulling exist because they yep. do. Yep. And then multiple, there's likely that multiple style there are, you know, there's maybe one style that's more advantageous for an individual based on their lovers, their preferences, you know, previous training to some extent. Yeah. And, uh, and again, maybe, maybe increasing the the total velocity. Right. So yeah, I'm with Especially you on a lift that doesn't depend on a floor pull. So if we're talking about a deadlift, you can, you can, you can make an argument that, yeah, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want any horizontal displacement off the floor because it, that, that, you know, that's, that's a very hard part of the lift. But if you're getting to a good position at the knee and the snatch or the clean, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it matters how you got there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's actually a good point because the way I think about it is that the, right when you get into the second pole, that's yeah. like the f- final common pathway, like all roads lead to Rome, all, they yeah. all go to the same position, yeah. but there are multiple ways to get it there. And sure. then individuals will likely have different results by adopting different styles. And so again, to think that there's one efficient model that covers all different anthropometries and relative strengths and weaknesses, et cetera, seems reductionist. Yes. That's a tough claim to make. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's last thing we'll talk about with weightlifting after you did the humble brag about your numbers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the programming that we kind of used. We, we used RPE, which stands for rate of perceived exertion yep. for a lot of your weightlifting programming. And, uh, this is not a common application for RPE. So RPE, again, just to give people a Reader's Digest sort of uh, a review of this stuff, started by uh, an exercise physiologist, Gunnar Borg. The original scale and still used today, it goes from 6 to 20. The idea was uh, that you could ask somebody after a, an aerobic or during an aerobic activity what they felt like their exertion level was from six to 20 and you'd give them a chart that gave them, you know, characteristics of that exertion, you know, how hard they were breathing, for instance, or how hard the effort was. And it, whatever they said, you multiplied it by 10 and that would give you a proxy for their heart rate, which has been validated in a number of studies. We apply this to resistance training via Mike Tushier initially, and then later work by uh, Eric Helms and Mike Zordos and uh, all those, all those folks. And now we use this one to 10 scale where 10 is a max effort, can't do any more reps. RP9 is near max effort. You could do about one more rep and so on and so on. But we apply this to weightlifting. Uh, It was interesting because we started off using RPE and then you were like, I don't know if I can like, if I really can understand how you're trying to communicate with me as far as how hard these things should be. Yeah. And so then we went back to percentages and then we later switched to RPE again. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, I guess if you had to explain like your learning process with using RPE, like how would you, how would you explain that to somebody? Okay. So I was familiar with RPE when I started weightlifting and where I ran into problems was I was, I kept thinking about it as reps in reserve, you know? So I would do, yeah. you know, maybe a snatch complex, a snatch pull to the hip and then a snatch. And maybe we're doing that for, for doubles. And I would get to the end of the set and I'll say, it, it, I was thinking about it the wrong way. I was thinking reps in reserve where I think what, what would have been better at that time when I, when I, when I had just started was to think about overall effort or maybe technique yeah. or yeah. I, I think that would have, that would have, that would have been, that would have been a better deal at the start. Um, towards peaking phases, what, and when we later went back to RPE, I would think about the attempts as, you know, maybe I would, 
I would I would rate the the attempts as like, oh, that felt like an opener or that felt like a second attempt or, you know, that that was it for the day. That was a RPE 10. That was a that was a max attempt. That was a third attempt. I got nothing left. Right. And where we ran into problems with percentages was we would we were we would have these percentage ranges for lifts and sometimes you come in and you're feeling crummy and 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 it's just not happening that day. And you yeah. end up trying to hit those numbers anyway. You're doing it with bad positions, you're walking the bar forward or back. So I I, I think both have limitations and both have their uses. But I, I I think the RPE scale for weightlifting would would be more based on effort than it would be on reps in reserve. Right. And so when you're talking about reps in reserve, what you're saying is that at the end of the set, you're like, how many more reps of that could I have done? Right. Versus how hard was the actual effort? Yeah. And so one of the things that I started including and is in like our, our Olympic weightlifting template, which is heavily based on what you and I have experienced. <laughs> so um, test them here. Well, I mean, I think a lot of, particularly in online coaching, there's a lot of like selection bias that goes on. that filters people to certain coaches and certain yep. organizations, right? So people are, are, most of our stuff happens to be like either gen pop who just want, want to get stronger and healthier. Yeah. We can do that or power lifters. That's probably the bulk, you know, but we have physique folks and we have Olympic lifting folks and we have CrossFitters. And, uh, but so I, I started including this thing in, you know, the normal RPE chart has like effort level. So if it's RP six, how, how hard was it? Um, and usually we correlate that to reps and reserve. And then there's some notes there just like, here's how hard it should feel. Here's some general characteristics of that effort level. Yeah. I put a technique modifier in there. Yeah. So like an RPE six effort level, be an easy warm up weight. You could do another three reps or so of the complex or exercise and you sure. have one or less technique error. And in these technique errors are usually due, I put this all in there, the technique errors seen here are typically due to the lightweight being used. Mm -hmm. So you like rushing the first or second pull or, you know, uh, you're, it's so light that you don't have to necessarily like maintain great mechanics, yeah, yeah. which you see all the time in newer lifters yeah. anyway. And so, and then I put a management thing like, so what do you do now? Because <laughs> if, if you're having this one technique error, you know, and it's due to just the lightweight, what do you do? So just go up. Yeah. You know, and then focus on internal cues. So like cues that relate to the body movement and you compare that to like RP eight, which I describe as like a routine work set weight. You could do another one or two reps of the complex or exercise and you have two or less technique errors. And this might be minor positioning errors. Like the hips are too low. You're jumping forward slightly yeah. or issues in the receiving position. And then in that instance, you might focus on, uh, external cues. So like media, you know, something to do with the barbell or also yeah. internal cues, something to do with your body. And if you can't correct them, you should go down and wait. It's yeah. just, you're adding additional context for people to understand. And that's really what we're trying to do with RPE yeah. is find a way to communicate, like how hard should this be? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, that's tough. That's tough to do with a percentage, right? Because you tell someone to work up to 85% clean and jerk. And you know, there's two ways that can go. I'm mean, it, it could be, they could be having a great day and maybe that's like, you know, that, that, that goes like a last warm up, or maybe they could, they could be having a bad day and they're hitting positions that they, they shouldn't necessarily be hitting that day. So there, there's, there's downsides percentage that I, the percentages that I think people uh, downplay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's pluses and minuses to both. And I think providing yeah. a consistent and, you know, reasonably accurate and then easily implementable sort of 
intensity prescription is is key here. And so that's why I think, again, you can use RPE for Olympic weightlifting. You just have to expand upon the traditional scale to make it to make it so that lifter and coach both understand. Now, when you're coaching people, you can do this. Yeah you know, by looking at what's happening and then also communicating with your lifter. Right. If you put on what should be, you know, 80% of their best clean and jerk and you're having them do singles. Well, you know that, well, that's, they should move pretty snappy. Yeah. Their technique should be really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you see them like almost get, you know, stapled at the bottom <laughs> of the receiving position, you're like, well, either their performance is not up to snuff today. Yeah. <laughs> or I missed some b- big error in their pull. Um, and so then you have to adjust to get the appropriate strain and stress for the day. And you can do that. You do that on the fly, no matter what you're using, yeah. RPE percentages or discrete loads. You just, you can do that in person. And if you're not in person, you need to have something, an adjustable scale. And I think that's where RPE shines compared to percentages. Yeah. You can have a percentage range, which is why we did that. Sure. But yeah, the having a coach there in person, I think is 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 it probably more important for Olympic weightlifting than it is for powerlifting, and certainly more important than like general strength training. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. A coach, a club environment, um, those things tend to be much more helpful. Uh, p- powerlifting is more simple in the sense that there's 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 less factors at play. You know, mm-hmm. but you can you can walk in on a day where you're snatching. And make the same error and not really pick up on what you're doing. You know, maybe you're pulling around the knee that day. Your your back's a little fatigued, and you know you you can miss you can miss a weight that a coach would have you know a coach could have corrected that on a warm up and and that day would have gone completely differently. Where as that, that's not the case in powerlifting, where the skills are a little less dependent on you know on on the overall skill level or how how you you know you can you can get away with a little slop in your squat or you know if the deadlift jumps off your leg a little that's not gonna it's not gonna be the difference between you know a a good day and a terrible day whereas a few of those sessions can you know can that could that could ruin that could ruin a training block if it's week in and week out and you're you're making the same errors over and over again and then you know you ingrain bad habits so i i think a club and a coach those things go a long way in weightlifting yeah uh, I view powerlifting is more of a, it's like a restricted environment yeah. as far as like the actual skills needed and then sort of in management. There's just less, like if you had a decision tree, there's just less yeah. compared to Olympic weightlifting. And, yeah. and that kind of speaks also to like the general skills that are rewarded. So I, while I do want most people who are engaging in resistance training period to develop this big base of like physical, you know, development, right? I want them to be generally well-conditioned. Yep you know, stronger, gain muscle mass, have experience with a lot of different movements before they specialize, right? So big sampling base. I think I would want that even more so for Olympic weightlifting, just because the movements are much more complex and dynamic. And there are more situations that you have to be prepared for to be successful, um, even in just the movements. And so, uh, yeah, it's just a, a less restricted environment. I think that's having a coach and having, again, people around you doing the same thing helps, uh, kind of with that development and also just giving feedback. So, all right. So look, man, you did this for two years Yeah, and you're like, you know what? No more. What's, (laughs) what's up with that? Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I kind of ran into those problems. The, the, 
the lack, you know, the lack of an in-person coach, the lack of a club. Um, I, I would, I would go into the training session, kind of be the guy in the corner doing clean and jerks. And, um, the, the training, the training got repetitive, but in, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of repetitive where you're, you're peaking for a powerlifting meet and you're just doing squat bench and deadlift, but you have some way forward, right? You have some momentum. Whereas with, with weightlifting, it became apparent that if, if, if I didn't have a coach or a club or some way to build momentum in training or, or stop making the same mistakes over and over again, the training was just not, you know, enjoyable. And I, I think that that's what I ran into at the, at the end of that little experiment. Now I can't say I'll never, I'll never snatch and clean and jerk again or something like that. I, I, I still enjoy doing the lifts. I could see myself doing them in a GPP block or something like that, but I, I think to to I I want to be a good lifter, and I think if if you want to be a good lifter, you have to be in a situation that allows for that sort of thing. And uh, you know, I I just wasn't in that situation. Starting late, not having access to a coach and a club. You know, if if I had a different set of circumstances, or maybe I was way more talented than I am, then maybe that would be different. But it it was it was getting to be not enjoyable and. And I, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to sacrifice getting stronger for just doing more weightlifting training that wasn't, that wasn't going anywhere anyway in that, in, in that, you know, short while. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were over it. I think I, that's the TLDR. Yeah. I was over it. <laughs> that was it was a, like your CrossFit experiment over it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, honestly, the, the deal, like I'm hyper competitive. Yeah. And like, I know, big surprise. But then I did not see like the path towards a similar level of competitiveness that I had achieved in powerlifting. Right. And uh, yeah, that was less, I was less motivated to continue on putting in the work that I needed to put in, in order to like, try to get, keep getting better. Yeah. And some people say, you should, well, you should have just stuck it out, man, work hard. And if you just try hard enough and <laughs> believe in yourself and all, and I'm like, yeah, but I never would have made it to the games. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, that that it's hard to catch up on ten years of GPP when you're you know when you're in your late twenties. So. Yeah, and it's not just from like a trainability standpoint. It's just like you know, the big base that has been built already. Yeah, yeah, it has has been restricted now for for a while, and so exactly. that's just another argument for like if you're not a competitive powerlifter, competitive barbell sport athlete, I feel like continuing to work on that big base, it just gives you more options, more flexibility, more yeah. physical flexibility that's actually useful later on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Second big topic I want to talk about MMA. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. I know nothing about MMA outside of like what I see on TV <laughs> and what I've read in the literature with respect to like the physiological demands and injury rates and everything else. So if I use the incorrect nomenclature, or, uh, you know, just, you can't make fun of me. Okay. Like, I mean, I mean, you can just not over the air cause it's my podcast and sure. <laughs> I'll just edit it out anyway and pretend that it didn't happen. Oh, uh, do you have a specific type or flavor of MMA that you train? Are you like BJJ or you like judo, a judo player who, you know, something like that? Like, I got, I don't, I don't even know what your, if you specialize or not. No, no, I, 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 I have no personal experience with, with those, uh, sports besides some Taekwondo I did when I was younger, but I've, I've coached a few lifters who've done, uh, some jujitsu, uh, recreational 
at the recreational level, not at the competitive level. So that that's a, that's about as far as I've delved into that that world. Yeah. So my dad, mm-hmm. Leonard, uh, was a judo player. Yeah. And uh, I, like you know, your dad's got old man strength, right? Yeah. So that's thing one. And also, my dad's got the biggest hands that I've ever seen on another individual. And I don't know, like I didn't get those hands. I don't have small hands, but he's got like these are paws. Way like, to go, Leonard. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. So like, and I've, I've met like Brad Gillingham and, you know, and shook that guy's hand. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a huge, like lobster claw. It's just like, it's, it's <laughs> encasing my whole hand, but my dad still, again, puts this man to shame. Uh, Leonard, Leonard's got a, a, a crazy grip and was judo player. Right. So I remember as a teenager, I just started getting into lifting weights. I thought I was, you know, I was a badass cause I had incline benched 135 right before I graduated high school. I, and to me, I, I had made it. And I was the pinnacle of, uh, <laughs> well, cause in high school that was, Ooh, you got the big wheels on there, yeah, right? Yeah, you got the plates on. Yeah. Uh, at least the people who I was training with. So in any event, I remember I said, so I don't know, I could tell you what I said to him or like whatever, but he, that dude threw me across the room, not in like a, like a child abuse kind of way, yeah. but in a, way, in a way that like asserted dominance and said, also, by the way, I know judo and you know, nothing. Okay. I was like, damn it. All right. Yeah. So. So when we're talking about MMA and training, because you've worked with also a few people who do MMA and are like into lifting weights, right. what's your what's your sort of general view on how to combine the two successfully? So the the example is, you know, guy it's typically male, so you know, uh, says, "Hey, I want to get stronger, bigger, etc., but I also I want to roll three times a week. Yeah. What do? Like, what's okay. your what's your process here?" If, if it's, if it's recreational and they're not, you know, a highly competitive, you know, athlete, in which case they probably wouldn't be coming to me for, you know, sports specific MMA advice. I would just say, Hey man, we're just going to train and you're just going to go, you know, roll and you're going to, you're going to spar, you're going to do what you do. And we're probably not going to change much. You know, if you're, if you're going into, to a local comp or something like that, maybe we'll, we'll have them, you know, taper the strength training down a bit, but I don't think in that case you have to, you know, make a huge, make a huge uh, adjustment to the, to the strength work. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. When people generally ask me this, I, I'm making assumptions again, that they're like a sort of recreational MMA athlete. Like, sure. They show up every time they put in the work, they want to get better. Right. But not to the degree that it's their pri- priority. Yeah. Meaning that they're, cause those folks would be in the MMA gym. Yeah. Five or six days a week. Yeah. And then at that point, strength training becomes a sort of supplemental or GPP. Yeah. It's GPP. Yeah. Yeah. And so that being said, there's like some overarching themes that I tend to think are important to focus on. So one is going to be just conditioning in general. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that is going to be developed uh, while you're rolling, you know, while you're actually training uh, yeah. the sport, you know, that you're getting SPP specific physical preparedness for your sport via actually participating in it. Yeah. And you but, would hyper specialize in, in, in strength in the weight room. So you wouldn't have them just do, you know, singles or triples or correct. like that. Yeah. So that's the second thing. So, but from the, fir- the cardio standpoint is that being said, most individuals will still have this deficit in conditioning unless they have some other conditioning background like that they've been pr- developing over a long period of time. Yep. It's, it's really hard to be over conditioned for conditioning, uh, heavy sports. Like it'd be like a CrossFitter saying, nah, my cardio is too good. <laughs> like, well, 
that may be true if you like have a background as like a triathlete or decathlete or, you know, some other type of conditioning heavy sport that you'd been training for a long time for. Yeah. But, you know, most folks are, well, if, if we're looking at a population level, most folks are sedentary. Yeah. If we look and if we look at the individuals who are in the, like the resistance training world, who then want to go do BJJ, BJJ, I think that most of them could stand to have better conditioning. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're, while you are going to get some SPP, specific physical preparedness, uh, development of your conditioning from rolling, you're not going to get all of it. Yeah. And it's not, and it's going to be limited by this base of particularly aerobic conditioning yeah. that you may not have unless you developed it otherwise. Right. Right. So, so I, well, here's a question that I can ask you. I, I normally program GPP for you. Yeah. How often do you do it? <laughs> I, I'm pretty good with my GPP. You're, I, better I, than, you're better than Austin. Yeah. No, I, I, I do it week in and week out. You know, if, if there's something going on, if I'm coaching a meet or something on a weekend, maybe I'll skip the second session. But I'm, yeah. you know, I, I get my GPP in. I, I yeah. get my conditioning in. Yeah, we know how often Austin does it by the times he posts it on Instagram. Yeah. So it's like it's like quarterly quarterly GPP. Yeah, he just um, gets on the bike, takes the, takes the photo, and, and it comes off. Right. But so, yeah, so generally for, for MMA folks, uh, I, I'm assuming, you know, either a very uh, – a relatively low base of, you know, aerobic development. And so that's my initial, like, the first – couple months of their, uh, you know, aerobic prescription is going to be to develop that. And it's going to be moderate intensity stuff, sustained tempo efforts, aerobic intervals. And people are like, yeah, well, what about hit? I'm like, well, if you think about it, hit high intensity interval training is anaerobically dominated. Yeah. You're already doing a lot of that in the ring. Fatigue is, it's kind of not worth it from a. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's both sides to that argument, right? It could be, it could be, I mean, you could include it, but it, if, if you're already doing that stuff on the mat and you're just trying to develop an aerobic base in the gym and you're, you're already, you know, strength training and if yeah, you which is hit training on steroids. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, the, so the, that's usually generated from doing, you know, really heavy intervals or, or, or like a heavy prowler session or something like that. You wouldn't think that's, that would be worth it for a, for even a, a recreational, you know, MMA guy. Right. Unless that's the only way that they'll do conditioning. Yeah. But okay. I think that the like rate limiting step here is more aerobic development versus yeah. anaerobic development because the anaerobic arm is getting developed all the time. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, you need to practice that stuff, which you're doing when you roll and when you resistance train, mm-hmm. but you still need to get that aerobic base. So I like the longer efforts, tempo efforts, aerobic intervals, which are going to be like, you know, three minutes on a minute off, three minutes on two minutes off, something like that. Um, that tends to be where I start for the first few months to kind of try to build that base and then tailored it, tailoring it more to the individual. Yeah. The second thing I think about is the resistance training components. Yeah. So I, I mean, what's your view on like the variety here as far as lifting variations and rep range variations? Like, do you have a, any thoughts about, do you have any thoughts about how you would do that for, a uh, somebody who wants to get an MMA? Yeah. So if, if they're, if they're, if their main, if their main goal is strength training to help their MMA or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're just recreational and they're, they're viewing the strength training. They're, they're not doing strength training to become powerlifters. So there, there isn't a reason to hyper specialize in the gym if that's not their main pursuit. You know, they're not coming to you to become powerlifters. So I think the, the training in that case, it, give, it gives the coach a lot more flexibility to do other things. 
you don't have to just squat bench and deadlift for low, you know, for low reps. You can, right. you can, you can include other stuff. You can work on other aspects of, of, you know, their overall development. So th- it, it gives the coach some flexibility. You, um, and, uh, this is something I've been thinking about after listening to David, uh, David Epstein's, uh, podcast. Uh, he was on a podcast the other day and he was talking about, uh, you know, like youth athletic development. Oh yeah. So, mm-hmm. And when, when I heard that I, in my, in my mind, I'm thinking about programming, right. Cause you know, I, I'm not developing youth day in and out of the gym. And I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, that, that, that sort of thought applied to, to programming outside of just prepping someone for, for a powerlifting meet. I, it's, I'm kind of at a loss for words here thinking about this, but. <laughs> well, so, so what Hassan is, is referring to is, so David Epstein has two really great books out, um, that are applicable here. One is sports gene. So like 10 out of 10 would recommend buy that book, read that book. And his recent book just came out on the 28th of May is range, yeah. which talks about youth athletic development and like developing all these cognitive skills, uh, and not specializing because building this huge bait, not specializing early in particular, because we all specialize, you know, to some extent, mm-hmm. but early on in development, you'd want to develop a wide range of skills that you can later use to apply specifically or bring together specifically. And, and likely that's going to be, give you a leg up. So I, I, I have similar thoughts when it, when it comes to like a, a non powerlifting sort of application, let's just yeah. talk about like general athleticism, right? Yeah. Like somebody's using training to bolster their sporting performance. And it's not a specific sport where we have a ton of data on like track and field or like a running based sport, like soccer, yeah. for instance. So, because we do have like some specifics that are known quantities, but we don't really have that, those known quantities for a, a sport that's got <laughs> infinite sort of different scenarios that people might be placed into like MMA. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you so would, you're actually looking at general development there, you know? Right. Right. So you, so you would want to develop increased force production, which is strength in a particular, in many different contexts, yep. not just one particular context, like just a five, five rep range or yeah. three rep range or one rep range. You'd mm-hmm. want to develop proficiency in that, you know, what we would consider, you know, heavy strength, you know, low velocity, high force production. So that, you know, four to six rep range, mm-hmm. you'd also want to develop proficiency in a sort of intermediate rep range, eight to 12. Okay. Where there's a, you know, some, uh, uh, neurological, uh, sort of adaptations that occur, but also structural adaptations from a, from a, uh, you know, fatigue dissipation and like energy requirements. And, you know, there's some conditioning element there. And then you'd also probably want a a, a much higher rep range too, just to, and then the second layer is you wouldn't want everything to be low velocity, heavy weights. You'd want some high velocity. Yeah. And then you're right. The third arm is movement variety as far as like we were just using different tools to achieve improvement. Yeah. So you can't make the argument, for instance, in MMA training that like low bar back squats better than front squats. Yeah. And you can't make the reciprocal argument either. Rather, yeah. I would say you'd want multiple different types of squats that the person's exposed to over the course of their training. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with poles. Like is conventional better than sumo for an MMA person? It's like, it doesn't what? matter. That's the wrong question. Yeah. I mean, you need to ask like, what can the person do? What resources do they have? Yeah. Which one's more trainable and consistent? And, you know, that might be a trap bar deadlift. Yeah. Or yeah. an RDL or, you know, something else. Uh, so I just think it's more variety. And that's that's typically how I end up 
programming uh, for these folks. So we don't have like an MMA template coming out, but uh, some of these thoughts are distilled down into the new, it's, I'm calling it the athlete template. There's like an in-season and out, out uh, and uh, off-season sort of elements to this where there's like way more variation and, and, uh, and all of those things um, than what we'd see in like a typical strength or hypertrophy based. Yeah. Template. That, that movement bandwidth is, is high. They're not just good at three lifts. Right. Which is, yeah. Hey, if you're a power lifter, like that's your sport. Yeah. And so when it comes time to prep for the meet, yeah, you got to narrow your range a little bit. Yep. But outside of that, I think from a physical development standpoint, you're, you should have a, a wider range. Yeah. <sighs> Dude, Hassan, I love this, man. This was good. Yeah, this is good. You're you're uh, you're fun to talk to. I'm glad I could introduce people, the barbell medicine crowd, to your stuff. Uh, where can people go find out more information about you? All right, so I'm on Instagram at Hassan underscore barbell medicine. We've got a uh, we've we've got a good group now of underscore barbell medicine <laughs> <laughs> and, and two Michaels. And, and two, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> And uh, you you can you can email me at uh, Hassan at barbellmedicine dot com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but that's mostly for the group programming page. Uh, so Instagram and email tend to be best. Yeah, yeah, he's on the gram. All right, and I have to ask you one stupid question because I like putting people on the spot. And Austin's answer to this question, which I'll review at the end of this, is all time. All right. So if you could uh, compare yourself with any animal, which <laughs> would it be, and why? Okay. All right. If I can compare myself to any animal, it would be, I have these, you know, dark circles under my eyes. So I've always <laughs> been compared to a koala <laughs> and that, that's always been the thing. And, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend looks at it as like, uh, she, you know, she thinks it's cute or endearing and it, it would be a koala because, be, yeah, because of the dark circles under, you know, the dark circles under my eyes. I'd the Steve Buscemi eyes. That's yeah. why you're a koala. Yeah. Well, Austin's answer was he he wanted to be a dolphin, a dolphin because they're good swimmers and they swim fast. It's like the abstract thinking just. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I said that I would be an owl uh, because a few things, one owls are kind of, you know, they're a little shorter and a little broader. And I feel like, you know, that's my body habitus. I want to let people know I'm not like a full manlet, you know, I'm like five, 10 and a half. Okay guys, like let's not get carried away. But then the other thing, they have a specialized piece of anatomy in uh, uh, where uh, the skull sits. So normal humans, we have uh, our, our C2 vertebra has a specialized process called the dens or odontoid process. It's a, the remnant of the vertebral body for C1. And we are side to side range of motion. Our rotational range of motion is restricted due to ligaments, soft tissue, and how that bony prominence articulates with C1. But owls do not have that restriction. So they can, that's why they can move their head all over the place so that they can see more of the field. They have a wide range where they can see. And I didn't know that. Yeah. So my uh, advisor, when I was getting my <laughs> master's in anatomy, well, so first, like I've taken anatomy now five times, not because I like flunked it and had to like retake it, but I started out, I took comparative anatomy and then human anatomy and then an exercise assessment course that was anatomy heavy. And then I got my master's in anatomy. So I had to take human anatomy at the, in the med school the first time. Then I taught anatomy and then I took human anatomy again when I actually went through med school. So anyway, there's a lot of anatomy, but my advisor, my advisor, uh, oh man, what is his name? He's a guy, he was a neurosurgeon from Brazil 
And when he came to the United States, instead of taking all of his medical boards all over again, he uh, he just decided to teach anatomy. Uh, and any of Seagal, Dr. Seagal. Yeah, I was like, it's not Steven Seagal because that guy's a different person. But yeah. Dr. Seagal, anyway, he had all these owls in his office. And I was like, bro, what's up with the owls? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he just he, let you hear it. He pulls out this bird atlas, bird yeah. anatomy atlas, and shows me this thing. And he goes, and this is how you, the owls have so much range of motion. Guys, thank you for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We've been here with Hassan Manzur, and we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.